Take your Bibles, if you would, and stand with me and turn to the book of Matthew, if you would, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're finishing up our series, Reboot, as we... After you get through the new year and now you're in about six weeks into the new year, sometimes things slip off and we need to have a reboot and, and uh, get back on track. And this evening I want to continue us talking about prayer, connecting with God in a distracting world. Connecting with God in a distracting world. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, the Bible reads this way, and when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corner of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not, ye therefore, be not ye therefore like unto them. For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner pray ye. After this manner therefore pray ye. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time. And we pray that you will take the moments that we have and that you would multiply them, make them profitable. I pray that my mind would be clear. And I pray that my life would be right before you and that... I would uh, stand in, in righteousness before you because of what Christ has done. And I pray, Father, that you will give me the strength emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually to be able to do what you've called me to do. Father, we do pray for Pastor Clark once again. I pray that you would be with him and comfort his heart and his wife's heart and their family, I pray. And Father, I ask that you would help us as we look into learning how to Connect with you through prayer in a very distracting world. And Father, I pray that, that we would learn to be a praying people. I ask you for that. In Jesus' name, I love you. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There are far too many people, I should say far too many Christians, who settle for practicing a sterile religion. There are far too many Christians that, are, that really, they settle for practicing a sterile religion rather than enjoying a growing, vibrant, personal relationship with the living God. There is a major difference between the two. See, we need to remember that God is not a concept or a doctrine. He is a person who seeks a close one-on-one -on -one relationship with you and me. God doesn't want 
us to merely believe in him. God doesn't want us to merely just believe in him. He wants to relate to us on a personal level. He does not just want us to, uh, he just does not want us to, to, to hear us to recite prayers. He wants to converse with us. He wants an intimate fellowship with us. See, God wants to be actively involved in your life and in my life every single day. And that happens, one of the ways that it happens is by way of prayer. Too many times we think of God as an abstract concept instead of a living person. The creator of all the universe, the one that has called the universe out of nothing into what we see today, wants to have a personal, vibrant relationship and fellowship with each one of us. As I mentioned to you this morning, that there are effective elements to a prayer. And if, if we are going to be a praying people, we must see prayer as not something supplemental, but as something fundamental to the Christian life. I gave you the very poor illustration of my tie. You'll never forget what supplemental and fundamental is. If you weren't here, you missed it, and they'll probably tell you about it. Now, matter of fact, I'll tell you about it. I felt that I was inspired, but I also remember the saying from Dr. Box, that everything that pops into a young preacher's head is not necessarily from God. I told you this morning as I took my tie off that my tie is something that's supplemental. I don't need my tie to be able to look nice. But having a tie on with my suit, it makes me, it makes it look finished or, man, it looks sharp. But I can walk around without a tie on. I don't have to have a tie on with this suit. Man, that's given me a sec- another excuse to take my tie off. Thank the Lord. I'm I'm telling you, this illustration was inspired. (laughs) Then I said to you, but if I decided to take my pants off? Yeah, that's what I said as well. (laughs) We understand that guess what? The pants to the suit, that's fundamental. It would be foolish for anyone to walk outside their house without their pants on. And, And you're looking to say, that's nuts. That's crazy. What are they thinking? You might even laugh at that person. What a fool. But I, I would propose to you this evening that every single Christian that walks out their front door or crawls out of their bed without praying to Almighty God and asking Him to be able to help them and guide them throughout their day is just as foolish as the person that would walk out the door without their clothes on. See, too many times we look at prayer as something supplemental, as we mentioned this morning, instead of something that is fundamental to the Christian life. I mentioned to you that Jesus modeled the life of prayer. And that his disciples desired to have a prayer life like Jesus had. Why? Because Jesus' prayer life was just not perfunctory. That's not how you say that word, but you know what I mean. It just wasn't rote. But it was a relationship that he had with the Father in his humanity. He prayed and and he had that relationship and fellowship with the Father. The disciples saw that and they desired that. And so we see for us as believers that prayer is an essential element to our walk. So what are the effective elements 
of a good prayer life or, as a, or of a prayer life that connects with God in a distracting world. I mentioned to you this morning that what? We or you, you must pray or we must pray desperately. We must pray desperately. I talked to you about the need of the Father. It says, our Father, your need of the Father. And then I talked to you about your need of desperation. Many times when you hear messages on prayer, what you will hear is that you need to be more disciplined. You need to be more disciplined in prayer. And you, you have, if you're more disciplined in prayer, then you will be able to uh, grow in your prayer life. And yes, there is a place for discipline. But as I mentioned to you this morning, if you, if you are praying out of desperation, you don't have to worry about discipline. If you are praying out of desperation because you know that God is the only, only person that can answer that prayer, you know that God is the only one that can change the circumstance, change the heart, guess what? You don't have to be reminded to pray. You don't have to set a, a timer to be able to pray. Matter of fact, you don't even have to worry whether you prayed five minutes or if you prayed 50 minutes because you're so desperate and you need God to do such a work in your heart and in your life or in the lives of those that you're praying for. The time is not uh, of importance to you any longer because you are praying now desperately instead of just discipline. See, there's three D's in your prayer life. I mentioned this morning there's a dead prayer life. Sad to say, but that's where many Christians are. I believe the second level of a prayer life is a disciplined prayer life. Yes, there's a place for discipline and we need to be disciplined in our life. And I'm not saying that we ought to do things randomly, but what I'm saying, I believe that once you understand that God is the only one that can do anything about anything, you start to pray with desperation. And I believe the best type of praying is desperate praying. Why? Because you're dependent. Because you're dependent. But secondly, this evening, let's take a look at a second element. Effective praying is found in being desperate, but secondly, you must pray selflessly. Not only desperately, but selflessly. Take a look at Matthew chapter six and verse 10. The Bible says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is in, uh, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You must pray selflessly. Letter A, if you're taking notes, you live in a different kingdom. The Bible tells us that we are to pray that God's kingdom will come. And we understand that not, that is talking uh, primarily about the future, uh, the final establishment of God's kingdom, his eternal rule. We understand that. But it's saying here, if you go back and you study the Greek underneath it, it's saying that God's kingdom will come actually and completely. And it does mean that we pray for the soon coming of Christ's kingdom. But we also find that in the ministry of Jesus that the kingdom of God has, in a sense, already come. Turn over to Matthew chapter 3, if you will, please. Matthew chapter 3. See, this portion of Scripture here, it asks for the establishment of the kingdom of God by God for us, not by us for God. It's His kingdom come. See, you live in a different kingdom Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, the Bible says, And saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 21, you can write that down. It says, Neither shall they say, Lo, here or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom 
in one aspect is here because for all of us that know Christ as our personal Savior, the kingdom is inside of us. But I want you to think about something. When you think of a kingdom, there are many things that come to mind. But one of the first things that comes to mind is that someone is ruling in the kingdom. See, we're not only wanting, when we pray this, or when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, we say this Lord's Prayer, we're not only wanting the future kingdom of God to come, and we're not only wanting God to come and rule, but what, is be, what we are saying here as we are learning to pray selflessly, we're also wanting the kingdom of God in a personal, individual way to rule in our hearts and our lives. It says, thy kingdom come. See, when we pray selflessly, we are praying for God to rule in our life. See, as I said this morning, that's why I wanted you to come back tonight. It's one thing to pray desperately, but you can be praying desperately for everything that's outside of the kingdom or of God's rule. See, you could be praying for totally the wrong things. We could be praying for selfish reasons. The Bible tells us in James that we would, we would, sometimes we want things that why? We can consume them upon our lusts. That's not the way that we are to pray. See, we pray selflessly when we are praying. We're saying, God, I want your kingdom come. I want you to rule in my heart and my life. I want you to sit on the throne of my life. So when I'm praying to God and I'm praying desperately, Lord, I want your kingdom to come. But then he goes on and he says, thy will be done. So we see the second thing, that there's total surrender. See, if you're going to pray selflessly, you understand that you live in a different kingdom. It's not about you and your little kingdom. It's about God and his kingdom and his rule. And then it's about your total surrender to him. Thy will be done. This is the second aspect as we are going to learn to pray selflessly. You know, many times we all say that we want God's will to be done. But at times in our lives, it reveals something totally the opposite. See, if we're going to learn to pray selflessly, we must learn to totally surrender everything, turn everything over to God. No matter what his will is for our life. See, the problem is, that's hard. Folks, when you're praying desperately and you're praying selflessly and you say, God... I want you to rule my life and I want your will on my life no matter what. There are some pretty scary words to say. I want your will in my life no matter what. See, if we're praying anything else but that, we're not praying selflessly. Why is that hard and scary? Because it's the unknown. Secondly, because we have a wrong concept of God. Our theology of God is wrong. Our belief about God is wrong. See, the reason that it's hard and scary for us to say, Lord, I want you to rule my life, and I want to totally surrender everything to you that your will would be done. That means in your children's life. That means in your 
home life, your relationship with your husband or your wife. That means in your job situation. That means in your neighbor situation. That means in your finances. That means in every area of your life. I want your will to be done. And the reason that it's hard and scary, first of all, is because it's unknown. But second of all, is because we've got a wrong concept of God and we think that God is going to do us wrong. We wouldn't say it. But in, a, in back in our hearts, we're just like, oh, I wonder if God's going to send me to, you know, somewhere. Or I wonder if God's going to cause me to live in poverty. Or I wonder if God's going to uh, take my kids and send them off to some foreign country. I wonder if, what if God takes my house and then we've got to move somewhere else or See, we've got a wrong concept of God and we're afraid to let go because we don't see God as the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is the one who says that he wants to bless us with every good gift and that he is with us through the good times and the bad times and that he is working everything out for our good and that he has plans to prosper us and not to do us evil, not to harm us. But the reason that it's scary for us to say, I want to totally surrender to you is because we think that God might do something, quote, quote evil to us and that's totally contrary to what the Bible teaches you know where that comes from that comes from the flesh that comes from satanic influences see because that's not the God of the Bible I would much rather be in the lion's den with the Lord than to be in the, the king's palace without him. See, but to go to the lion's den, it's scary. But we forget that God can close the mouths of the lion. Not only is it scary and difficult because it's the unknown and because we have a wrong concept of God, we doubt God's love for us. Why do you think in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21, that Paul tells the Ephesians Christians that they would know the love of God? Because at many times we will doubt the love of God for us. But not only that, the reason that it's hard for us is because we have a will of our own, don't we? We have painted a picture, all of us have painted a picture of the way we expect our lives to be. But that may not actually be the will of God for our life. See, the center of self-will is made up of two letters. The center of self-will is made up of M-E, me. That's the same as your, the center of your self-will. It's made up of two letters, M-E. I am the center of self-will and so are you the center of self-will. And you know what you and I are doing in the middle of, of self-will? We are carving out a world in my image or in your image. And until we get a handle, each of us get a handle on how strong our own will is, we will never understand the petition, thy will be done. See, your self-will is a whole lot greater than you realize. See, when we pray in total surrender... We find that God is at the center of prayer, carving in me the image of his son. The difference between my self-will and his will being done in my life is that when his will is being done in my life, the image of Christ is being carved into me. 
So many times we talk about the great struggle of discerning God's will, do we not? We want to know, well, what's God's will for my life? I don't believe that that's necessarily a struggle at all. The more I think about it, the struggle is disowning my will for the will of God. When you learn to disown your will for the will of God, you'll know God's will. It's not, what does God want me to do? It's, it's God, what is your will? See, we've got to come to the place in our prayer life where we're not in charge and understand that. I can choose to see life, all of life, as a gift from God, or I can demand that life have a certain look to it. And what we need to remember is that prayer and self-will are both ways to get things done. Listen, prayer and self-will are both ways to get things done. But one is all about what you want, and the other is all about what God wants. See, self-will can get things done. Self-will gets things done in the ministry, but it may not be what God wants. See, if you're going to have an effective prayer life, you're going to pray selflessly. You're going to live in a different kingdom. You're going to totally surrender to God. But not only does effective praying mean praying desperately and praying selflessly, but it also means that you will pray trustingly. And yes, that's a word. Trustingly. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11. Take a look there. Give us this day our daily bread. Learning to communicate with God in a distracting world, you pray desperately. When you pray desperately, you don't need discipline as much as you do need desperation. You understand because you know that only God can do what God can do. Effective praying means praying selflessly. That it's not about my kingdom, it's not about my desires. I don't live in my little world. I live in his kingdom. I'm here to serve him. He's the ruler. I am the subject. I will totally surrender to his will. And then it's praying trustingly. Letter A, you have a childlike faith. To pray trustingly means you have a childlike faith. Verse 11 reveals a childlike dependence upon our Heavenly Father. There's nothing more Basic than the need of daily food. And a little baby, a little child can't provide food for themselves. They need someone to provide it for them. They are dependent on one that is greater than themselves to help meet their most basic needs. See, this childlike faith that we are to have in prayer, trusting in God is what is needed for effective praying. For without it, listen, there's no prayer at all. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. See, the problem with praying trustingly, I tried to be very honest with you with this message and very, very um, a matter of fact. But the problem with praying trustingly is sometimes God says no. And we don't like that. We ask God for what we think we need. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 11. We ask God for what we think we need. But God doesn't give us what we think we need. God gives us what he knows we need. Did you hear that, church? 
God doesn't give us what we think we need. Remember, that's praying. If we're going to pray selflessly, it's your will, not my will. Many times, we think we know what we need. But God does not give us what we think we need. God gives us what he knows we need. The, the issue is that we always think we know exactly what we need. We always think that we know exactly what we need. It's almost like inbred in us. You ever watch little kids? They think that they know what they need. They want a Pop-Tart instead of broccoli. You know, they think they know what they need. Uh, they think that they, they want to cross the street and they don't want to hold mom and dad's hand. Yeah, no, no I, don't, I don't want to. They think that they can do it on their own, but man, there's cars flying by and they're not thinking twice about it. No, I don't want to. And they're squirming and mom and dad, they're holding their hands saying, no, I'm going to tell you what you need. You need to wait for the red light and then we're going to cross the street. But you know what? We're no different than those little kids as adults. Because we look to God and we say, no, I want to, and I know what I need. And God's saying, no, you're going to wait until all danger's passed, and then I'm going to help you. Take a look at Luke chapter 11 and verse 11. See, the issue is that we always think we know exactly what we need. If a son shall ask bread of you, of, of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he... For a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he ask, if he, if, or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? See, the point is that many times we think that we can always tell a stone from a piece of bread or a fish from a snake. We can't always tell a stone from a piece of bread. And we can't always tell a fish from a snake. See, when we ask God for what we think is good, bread, we feel like he has betrayed us when we receive something more like a stone. In all reality, what looks like bread to us is really a stone, and what looks like a stone to us is really bread. Because God doesn't give us what we think we need. He gives us what he knows we need. One man said it like this. He goes, think of the cross. If there was anything that looked like a scorpion or a snake, it was the moment when the Son of God was being nailed to, to a tree and left to die. But that poisonous scorpion sting was the moment of our salvation. When Jesus was crucified for us, he took the scorpion sting into his body, guarantee, guaranteeing that we would get the good fish of God's grace. The cross is God's eternal pledge that no matter how bleak the circumstances, God is still working for your good. See, when you are willing to pray trustingly, you're going to have a childlike faith. And though you may think that you're receiving a stone, God's really giving you bread. So many times, I can't help but think of uh, those who go through health difficulties. Think of Mrs. Farrow right now being diagnosed with leukemia. We look at that as a stone. God's looking that, at, at that as bread. 
How can you say that? How can leukemia be bred? When... Because I've told you before, don't waste what God's given you. I was praying this morning, I was, and I was praying yesterday, Lord, help me not to miss what you've been trying to teach me for these past two years. Help me not to miss it. February 28th, it'll be exactly two years. It's Wednesday. Help me not to miss it. I've told you before, don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your, your, the, the, the broken relationship. Don't waste that. And we look at those so many times as stones when God is giving us bread. Hey, if God can take what is the most horrific thing in all of human history to the the physical eye, which is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the crucifixion of Christ, and turn that into something that is beautiful, something that is is life-giving. If he can take that, he can take our cancer. He can take our defeat. He can take our disappointment. He can take the divorce, the disease, the debt, whatever it may be, and turn what may look like a stone to us into bread. Say, why is that? Because God may be using that in our lives to remember he's always working for our good to carve out the image of his son in our life. He may be using that that what you would consider a stone in your life as using that to be able to draw somebody unto himself. He may be using that to be able to encourage a fellow believer to go on just a little bit further for the cause of Christ. See, we need to remember that God is still working for your good. When you pray trustingly, you'll have childlike faith, but then let her be. When you pray trustingly, you'll reject a cynical spirit. When you pray trustingly, you will reject a cynical spirit. The opposite of a trusting heart is a cynical spirit, and it's dramatically opposed to childlike faith. Cynicism really has, is, is really a dominant attitude, and it's permeated all facets of our culture. And it's even made its way into the church and the praying life of the believer. Cynicism is like this. Cynicism is when you pray and get an answer, you think to yourself, well, it would have happened anyway. Or you think, does prayer really make a difference? See, cynicism questions the act of goodness of God on our behalf. And when cynicism is left unchallenged, low-level doubts become the doorway for much greater doubts. See, what's happened to the childlike faith, the childlike spirit, it's been replaced by rationalism. It's been replaced by logic. It's been replaced by scientific fact. See, cynicism left unchecked will quickly put out the flames of faith in our hearts. One man said this in a book that I was reading on prayer. He said, cynicism is so pervasive that at times it feels like a presence. And Satan uses cynicism. And if Satan can't stop you from praying, then he will try and rob you of the fruit of praying by dulling your soul. See, Satan cannot create but Satan can corrupt. And see, when cynicism takes root, it feels more real than truth. 
What I found is that cynicism, the attitude of cynicism, can happen to anyone at any time. And the worst part about it is, if you try and pray with a cynical or even a weary heart, it feels fake. It feels phony. And for the cynic, life is already fake. It already feels phony. And you feel that you are just adding more mess to the mess that's already there. See, what cynicism tries to do, it tries to puff you up. Cynicism makes you think that you are in the know. It makes you think that you know better than everybody else. It gives you a false sense of knowledge and intimacy. And in all reality, what cynicism does in your life, when we start to question the goodness of God, that's what cynicism is. When we start to question the trust, the trust in God, that's what cynicism is. And what happens in all reality, what cynicism does, it destroys intimacy with God. That's why we must reject a cynical spirit. Because the intimacy that we need with the Lord is going to be destroyed. Folks, the truth is that all of us, all of us, will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. None of us are going to get around that. All of us will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And there's no getting around it. The child of God and the cynic, or the child, the, 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 the Christian that has childlike faith, and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But listen, this is the difference. When the, child, when the, when the Christian who has childlike faith and is, and is praying trustingly, when he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, or when she walks through the valley of the shadow of death, the child, the, the Christian has childlike faith, their focus is on the shepherd. Both the child, the Christian that has childlike faith, and the cynic walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The person that has a childlike faith focuses on the shepherd. The cynic focuses on the darkness. And what happens is, if we do not check that cynical spirit and we don't cultivate that childlike faith, the cynical spirit will destroy the intimacy that we need with the Lord. See, depending on what your focus is, will determine whether you give up and distance ourselves or whether you'll learn to walk with the good shepherd. Folks, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's very easy to become cynical. And if we're not careful, we're going to lose the thing that, we're so, that we so desperately need. And that's intimacy with the Lord. See, you become a cynic when you start looking in the wrong direction. See, you're looking for cracks in the Christian faith instead of looking for Jesus. It's really the orientation of your heart. 
You know what cynicism does? It kills hope. And hope begins with the heart of God. And as you hold on to the fact of what the Father's heart is like, how he loves to bless, how he loves to give, how he loves to deliver, how he loves to be our rock, how he loves to be our Savior, then prayer will feel completely different to you. So for us as believers, we must cultivate in our lives a grace-saturated vision which will help us reject cynicism and talk with our Father to restore our childlike faith. Do you realize that none of us should ever grow, outgrow childlike faith. Now, we ought to grow deeper in faith, but we should never try and outgrow childlike faith. See, if you're going to pray effectively, you're going to pray desperately. You're going to pray selflessly, and you're going to pray trustingly. Let me ask you, how is your prayer life? As I mentioned to you this morning, one theologian of current times said, if you want to embarrass most Christians, just ask them about their prayer life. How's your prayer life? See, I'm hoping not to get you to be more disciplined in your prayer life. I'm hoping to get you to be more desperate in your prayer life. I'm hoping to get you to be more selfless in your prayer life. And I'm hoping to get you to be more trusting in your prayer life. Folks, we can't trust God too much. So how's your prayer life? Are you able to connect with God in a distracting world? Or is it that it's very sporadic? Is it more like, can you hear me now? Or is there a direct connection that you have with God? That you know when you meet with him, he's meeting with you. I started this message by saying, there are far too many Christians who settle for practicing a sterile religion rather than enjoying a growing, vibrant, personal relationship with the living God. You know what the difference is? an effective prayer life. This evening, you say, what's the take home, pastor? This evening is that all of us would take those three principles and would apply them to our life so that we would just not be going through a sterile type of Christianity, but that we would be living with a vibrant fellowship with the Lord.